A reading from the Old Testament, the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 2, verses 18 through 26. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to a man who will come after me, and who knows whether he be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun, because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This is also vanity. There is nothing better for a person than he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God, for apart from him who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. The word of the Lord. Before we look at Ecclesiastes, um, just uh, need to highlight a couple of things upcoming for our church. One is that uh, Meet in the Street, which is coming up this Saturday, is an opportunity for us to provide a service and be a presence in our community. We mentioned last week that there are sign-ups for manning the outside of a diaper change tent station that we provide for parents to use. But our current sign-up for Meet in the Street is pretty low. So if having that community presence is, uh, at that event is something that's important to us as a church, then we need the church, i.e. y'all, uh, to make that happen. So we'll resend the sign-up this week, but you could talk also to Trent Anthony right after the service at the meet and greet today if you'd be willing to cover a, a shift at that tent. And then secondly, I want to underscore uh, our prayer gathering next Sunday night And with that prayer gathering, some changes that we plan to make in our study-serve rhythms. Because we value both uh, serving the church and carefully studying the Bible together on Sunday mornings. For many years now, on Sunday morning, members have served in some sort of ministry or service position for six months. And then after that, changed over to having the opportunity to attend a discipleship class of some sort for about six months. And then rinse and repeat, rinse and repeat. Sort of. As it turns out, many of our Sunday morning serve positions do not follow this rhythm exactly. You know, worship team members, youth ministry workers, uh, the adult discipleship host and teachers all function in very different ways because that's what works best for their ministry. So many of us are kind of off of this six-month rhythm already. Uh, Children's ministry has been the one ministry that's most singularly affected by the six-month serve-study rhythm. But as mentioned at our Vine Project family gathering last year, this is something we'd like to change. And while it might be more convenient for some of us adults to only serve for one semester, 
Um, our staff and some of our working groups have discussed and prayed over various options. We feel that it's best for our kids and for our kids' ministry and our coordinated, coordinated efforts across the board on Sunday morning, really, to ask all of our Sunday morning kids' volunteers and all volunteers to shift from a six-month, six-month rotation to serve for one full year, after which a vacation to Hawaii is awarded. Um, <laughs> We can't actually pay for it, but we're going to bless you as you go. Um, and there are some specific reasons for this change and several more. Yeah, but what about this or what about that? What if I want to take a class in the middle of that? Or what if I can't commit to a whole year? Let's talk. There's lots of workarounds we have for that, which is why coming to that prayer gathering next Sunday night will be so critical as we explain a bit more and then pray over the proposed changes. So more information coming your way this week. We'll send an email with a video with more details. But I wanted to get these things on your radar because they will need your, your input, your commitment, and your prayers. So with that said, let's pray together once more, and we'll jump into the book of Ecclesiastes. So let's pray. So Lord, today we ask that you would open our eyes to behold wonderful things in your word. Our eyes are captivated by many things, many days. Captivate us now with you and what you've said. We pray that you would incline our heart to your word. You know our hearts are often so distracted and inclined to many other things. Incline us now to hear from you. And then, Lord, today we ask that you would satisfy us with your word. You know our hearts are prone to find satisfaction in many other places. So this morning, satisfy us with your unfailing love, so that we would rejoice and be glad all of our days. Amen. Okay, Ecclesiastes chapter 2. The last bit of the chapter, starting in verse 18, is where we're going to be. Ecclesiastes continues this very rude awakening of our lifelong quest for you know, comfort and pleasure and success, achievement, satisfaction, all that stuff. And it's David Gibson says that Ecclesiastes basically will try to, it'll blow these beautiful bubbles. We'll see how this goes. I stole these from kids' ministry this morning. Sorry, kids' ministry. Oh, there's one. There's one. It's, yeah, I got, I'm going to have to hand this over to a kid in a minute, somebody who knows what they're doing. It'll blow these beautiful, beautiful bubbles of success and pleasure and achievement, and then as just as you watch it and start to like it, boom, it just pops it right in front of your face. And it does so by pointing you to your last day. It says these things aren't going to last. They won't satisfy us because we don't last. The needle that Ecclesiastes used to pop all of our bubbles is the fact that we all have a last day. Death is the destination of all human beings, rich or poor, wise or foolish, famous or in the untouchable caste of society. And we would all love to put that reality aside in a corner and amuse ourselves to death rather than learn to face our last day head on. Uh, Peter Kreft says that modern people live like this. If their life is a mansion, then they have a big, terrifying hole in the middle of their living room floor. And instead of owning up to that, we just paper over the hole with very fun and distracting wallpaper. Or you might think of it like this. If we had a rhinoceros in our house whose name was Death, how in the world would you hide a rhinoceros? Kreft says it's easy. Cover it with a million mice, multiple diversions. 
But Ecclesiastes wants to grab you by the scruff of the neck and force you to look at all those diversions, all those bubbles in life head on and ask if any of them can really sustain or satisfy you, especially in light of our mortality. So the writer or the preacher of Ecclesiastes, he started last week with bubbles of wisdom, education, pleasure, power, accumulation of wealth, and amazing building projects. And at the end of all, he says, pop, 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 pop. It's all vanity. It's all smoke or vapor, if you remember from the very first week. It's fleeting, it's frustrating, it's confusing, it's futile. Anybody remember the Hebrew word that we learned that maybe we'll remember? Hevel. Yeah, fleeting, frustrating, confusing, futile. Now, if you can't take his word for it, then consider the words of comedian Jim Carrey when he said, I think everyone should get rich and famous and everything they ever dreamed of so they can see that that's not the answer. You can learn this from the experiences of others or you can pay your own dues in life. Especially if you're young, there's a tendency to think that, you know, if I could just... Do the next thing, finish college, graduate seminary, get that job, get married to a certain kind of person, have a family, uh, be in that ministry position, write that book, then I would be at rest. I think I would be happy. I'd be at peace. But anyone who's lived long enough to achieve anything of worth will tell you, I thought it would too. But it's still not enough. And Ecclesiastes wants to pop your bubble sooner rather than later. Why? because he's like the mean kid on the playground that wants to run around popping all the other kids' bubbles? No. But in order to be prepared to hope in what does not deceive, we must first lose hope in everything that deceives. That's the message of Ecclesiastes. It's springtime these days, you know, and if if you want to transplant a plant, like the other day I put in a tomato plant into our little planter or basil plant or something, Uh, You have to take the plant from the little pot that you bought at the store, and then what do you have to do? You have to like rip up all of its little roots from the ingrown pattern that it had inside this little pot. You have to tear it up before you can put it in the new soil. It always seems so harsh to me. Poor little plant just ripping all the roots up, but it's necessary. And that's what Ecclesiastes is doing to us. It's tearing up our roots that we've grown in the soil of this world so that we'll learn to draw our nourishment from a more permanent and satisfying soil. So our passage for today, it's going to pull on the roots that we've connected too deeply to our work, our toil, as it will say, our careers, the thing that we spend most of our waking hours doing. But it's going to help us when it tears at our roots. It's going to expose our expectations of our work. It's going to assess our experience of our work. And then finally, it's going to show us how we can still find enjoyment in our work. So our expectations of work, our experience of work, and then how we can still find enjoyment in our work. So to end on a somewhat positive note today, that won't happen every week in Ecclesiastes, so that's nice. Enjoy it while you got it. Verse 18, he says, I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. 
Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. So why do we work? I suppose there's a lot of answers to this from, well, I kind of have to. I don't actually want to, but I have to. To, it's my life's passion. To, I want to build something, you know, that I can pass along to future generations. But the preacher of Ecclesiastes recognizes the old adage, you can't take it with you. And he's even quite skeptical about what you can actually leave behind. He recognizes that everything he worked for his whole life will eventually fall to someone else. And there's no guarantee that that person will use your life's work in the way you intended it. In fact, they probably won't. Think about it. Even if you were to ascend to the highest position of power and office in our country, and you were to become the president, and you work your whole life to get there, and you institute all these great policies and plans, how long do they last? You know? Count by multiples of four, right? Four or eight, maybe. And then the next guy comes in or girl and changes everything. How can you know that the next generation will use the money that you saved well or the things that you wrote? This is vanity and a great evil, the preacher says. You don't know what somebody's going to do with everything that you worked so hard for. 60% of the time, a family's inheritance is completely used up by the children of the one who created the wealth. And 90% of the time, it's all gone by the time the grandchildren die. The most notable example of this is probably the Vanderbilt family of Biltmore fame. Uh, Cornelius Vanderbilt was the second richest American ever. He lived in the mid-1800s, worth now what would be over $200 billion, outstripping Bill Gates by a good bit. But in a book documenting the lives of the 100 wealthiest Americans, it found that by 1970, of the 120 remaining Vanderbilts, they didn't have a millionaire among them. After so much toil, Herculean effort went into creating the Vanderbilt fortune. And within a generation or two, it's gone. So much for generational wealth creation, you know? It's, it's vanity, it's fleeting, it's frustrating, and it's futile. Let's play Name That Tune again, shall we? Now you're climbing to the top of the company ladder. Hope it doesn't take too long. Can't you see there will come a day when it won't matter? Come a day when you'll be gone. Oh, I don't care about... Anybody? You know where we're going? Oh, there's one 80s rocker back there. And I knew Greg Wilson would be the one to say it, wouldn't you know? The guy right up here. Yes, that's Boston. And Greg's like, he's looking around. Come on, people. Are you awake? Are you not? Thank you in the back, Greg. So what's the preacher's point? We're prone to expect our life's work to do something for us that it cannot do. Whether that's permanently provide financial stability to our posterity or start a ministry that will last beyond us or build houses or buy land or stock or collect trading cards or write a book. What happens to all that after you're gone is totally out of your control and more than likely will wash away like a sandcastle. Now, is this to say that you shouldn't save for retirement or try to leave something for your kids or leave a good legacy behind or not work at all for that matter? Certainly not. Ecclesiastes would say that would be foolish thinking. But you need to hear what he is asking you. He's asking you, what are you really expecting from your work? 
What are you hoping that it will do for you? And you need to feel the weight of what he's saying and feel the sting of knowing that your best efforts will not last in this life and your final legacy will be out of your control lest you expect that your work or even your ministry guarantee you something it could never guarantee. He's trying to protect you from that kind of massive letdown when you look back on your life and weep because you realize that all the things you worked so hard to build will inevitably crumble. So he's trying to expose and then help us adjust our expectations of what our life's work can ultimately bring to us. He wants you to adjust your expectation. But more than that, verse 22, he wants to help us assess our experience with work. Verses 22 and 23. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. Uh, A Gallup poll from a few years back surveyed people from 167 countries. That's like 85% of the world's countries. That's a lot. And supposedly found one of the biggest findings in the history of Gallup polling. And they do a lot of polling. And it's that a good job matters to people these days almost more than anything else. Across country, socioeconomic status, Gallup CEO Jim Clifton writes, Humans used to desire love, money, food, shelter, safety, peace, and freedom more than anything else. The last 30 years have changed us. Now people want to have a good job. And they want their children to have a good job. In these surveys... More than love, more than money, more than food, more than shelter, safety, peace, or freedom, people said they most valued a meaningful job, desirable career. Man, we expect a lot from our jobs. This is really big for us today in the modern era, choosing a career that perfectly aligns with my skill set with my gifting, my personality that pays me decently, lets me work from home in my pajamas, and never, ever stresses me out. Finding the perfect career is like huge for us. And at the same time, a New York Times article reported that 85% of people report significant work-related stress. And only 30% of people would say they're even fully engaged at their job. They go on to report that work is, for Americans, the second most miserable activity. Out of 40 activities to choose from in the poll, only being sick in bed makes people less happy than working. You've heard the sage advice, right? Choose a career that you love and you'll never work a single day in your life. Well, either I chose the wrong job or that's just bad advice because I love what I do and it is also work. It involves some stress. And while it is good and it is helpful and it's important to try to find a job that fits with you and provides for your needs, there's just no avoiding the toil and striving of heart is what Ecclesiastes calls it. The vexation which means agitation or anger that accompanies our work. So, we have a complex relationship with work. 
We want a lot out of it, but it stresses us out. It vexes us to the max. And I don't know, maybe there's a connection here. Perhaps at least one of the reasons for our stress is how much we're asking our work to deliver to us. But I think from the context of the chapter especially, you'll see the preacher's point is that if you're seeking to use your work to fill the empty spaces in your soul here under the sun and to really make you somebody, you'll find that work fills your soul all right (laughs) with more stress and anxiety. Even in the night, his heart cannot rest, the passage says. Your body can lie down, but your mind cannot. You lay in bed, mind spinning, chest tight, and you reach for your phone again to numb the angst. If held too tightly or valued too much, work can actually destroy a person, eating them up from the inside. I came across a tweet the other day. It's from 2019, actually, which I guess means I don't get on Twitter that often. Did I miss anything in 2020, 21 on Twitter? I don't know. Uh, But this just hit a little too close to home. He said, I love how being an adult is just saying, but after this week, things will slow down a bit again and again to yourself until you die. (laughs) Ouch. You know, anybody resonate with this? This hits a little too close to home. Is there a better way? Contrast this with Psalm 127 in the deep rest of one who knows that they are loved by God and that their days are in his hand. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved Sleep. Or as Jesus says, as he invites us to entrust God with our worries. And which one of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon, in all of his glory, was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? See, Jesus tells us there's a better way to live. There's a better way to work. And the preacher of Ecclesiastes will actually start to point us in that direction. If it's all going to go away like sand... You know, if you're telling me it's not going to last, I don't know what's going to happen to it afterwards, and it's always stressful in this life. So what good news did you have to tell me about work today exactly? You know, pin, click, we're ready. Ecclesiastes wants to teach us something, to teach us an alternate approach to our work that will help us enjoy our work, even amidst our toil. So enjoyment lasts, verses 24 to 26. There's nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink, and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he's given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to the one who pleases God. This also is vanity and striving after the wind." So the preacher's solution here, it's a very simple one. 
And it's that we must learn to receive our work as a gift from the hand of God. His advice is rather modest. In the face of a world trying to accumulate or build a name for oneself, content yourself with daily bread. Eat, drink, find enjoyment in your work. Do good work for the sake of the work itself. You don't have to try to make work into a savior for your own life or for future generations, but you can enjoy it as God's gift to you in this day, your day. This is from the hand of God, he says, and it's God who enables you to enjoy your labor and to eat. The preacher's secret to navigating vanity is to receive your life and your work as a gift from the hand of God and to find joy in that. David Gibson writes, death reorients us to our limitations as creatures and helps us to see God's good gifts right in front of us all the time, each and every day of our lives. Ordinarily, we eat and drink simply as fuel to enable us to keep going with our work. Ordinarily, we work not just to earn a living, but to find satisfaction and purpose and very likely to make a reputation for ourselves and to achieve success. What if the pleasure of food is a daily joy that we ungratefully overlook? What if our work was never intended to make us successful, but simply to make us faithful and generous? And what if it is death that shows us that this is how we are meant to live? How might your life and your work change if you begin to think about work this way? Not primarily as a means for personal fulfillment or advancement, but as a simple gift from the hand of God. How might your life change if you began to measure your work, not by the outcome that it might produce, but as a simple embrace of the daily gift that's right in front of you? Now, you might wonder, yeah, but my day job is just straight up mundane. Like it is the worst. You have no idea. I talked briefly with the cashier in the drive-thru at PDQ last Sunday when I was picking up chicken for the fam. She was filling up hundreds of little cups of ranch sauce for families like mine that go through far too much in between ringing people up. And I asked her, you know, about her job. I bet that job does not feel like a gift. <laughs> but is it? Is it? Is yours? Is your job not a gift from the hand of God? Isn't it? Not that you can't look for a better job. Not that it's any of those jobs are free from vexation under the sun. They will always fully be. But I wonder what seeing even that mundane job of filling up sauce or grading papers or leveling gravel as a simple gift might do for you. As the old Shaker song goes, tis the gift to be simple, tis the gift to be free, tis the gift to come down where we ought to be. And many people have found help for mundane work in the old friar, Brother Lawrence, in his classic book, Practicing the Presence of God. Of Brother Lawrence, it was said that likewise in his business in the kitchen, to which he naturally had a great aversion, he was the monastery cook and hated it, 
he accustomed himself to do everything there for the love of God. And with prayer upon all occasions for his grace to do his work well, he had found everything easy during the 15 years that he had been employed there. In his own words, he said, we can do little things for God. I turn the cake that is frying on the pan for love of him. And that done, if there is nothing else to call me, he kneels down in worship on the kitchen floor before him who has given me grace to work. Afterwards, I rise happier than a king. It is enough for me to pick up but a straw from the ground for the love of God. Or best of all, in Paul's words, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Because whether you eat or drink or cut grass or enter data on spreadsheets or fix lunches, that work is a gift from God's hand. And he will give you the ability to find some joy in your toil, even though after Eden, it's always a mixture of flowers and thorns. And I think this is why making a practice of daily thankfulness, I mean literally, keeping a list on your phone or a little journal where you can write small things during the day that you can be thankful for, can be so powerful in training us to have joy in our work, even when it's not terribly fun. The preacher ends his thoughts on the matter of work like this. For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to the one who pleases God. This also is vanity and striving after wind. Okay, what is this all about? Well, it's interesting. Now that God has entered the picture in the book for the first time, is the first mention we've seen of God in the book. There's a ray of light that cuts through the fog for a moment. To the one who pleases God, God will grant wisdom and knowledge and joy. Commentator Craig Blomberg says that wisdom, knowledge, joy, this is a promise of peace, of shalom, the kind of whole life, deep and abiding peace that the preacher, the preacher was searching for all along in his quest. To the one who pleases God, this is his gift to them, peace. But to the sinner, he's given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to the one who pleases God. Somehow, God will use even the schemes of the wicked to one day bless those with whom he's pleased. Somehow, in the end, God will see to it that those who love and trust him find peace, while those who have ignored or spurned him will be left empty-handed with nothing to really show at the end of their lives. And yet it's interesting, even this final reckoning, the preacher calls vanity and striving after the wind. And I think that's because you can't, you can't put it into some calculus or formulaic machine exactly how God is going to sort all that out the justice of this life. You can't figure out from this side of eternity how God is going to sort out who gets what in the end. But the preacher does begin to see, do you see, he begins to slowly shift ever so slightly his perspective on life from what you would call just here under the sun to slightly above the sun, that there, there is more. The New Testament will help us make the shift fully that the preacher can't quite make 
about life here under the sun. Now, I hardly know anything about photography, honestly, but in the interest of researching for this sermon illustration, I learned just a little bit about photography. I've read that you can photograph a person or a scene from just, you know, slightly different angles, and if you know what you're doing or with different lenses or focal lengths on the lens, you can create a whole different perspective in the shot. For example, this is the same person photographed with four different focal lengths in the lens. Dude looks pretty different, right? But it's the same person from a different perspective. The New Testament will complete the perspective shift that the preacher can only start. Now, I must confess, I'm actually slightly reluctant to even make the shift for you today, but I'm going to with a label warning because I really think we need to sit in the preacher's perspective in Ecclesiastes for a minute. Because in an age of infinite distraction, we need to feel the weight about what he's saying about how futile life is under the sun. I'm reluctant to tie up a pretty bow on everything and send you out today, not having anything to wrestle with in the preacher's challenge to us. Because life is short and we are prone to use our work and many other things to give us more than it's meant to give. And we need to have those roots torn up in us. Again, In order to be prepared to hope in what does not deceive, we must first lose hope in everything that does deceive. We need to be cut back before we can move forward. But I also don't want to leave us floundering with no hope today or for everyone to quit their jobs this week and blame it on me. So let's finish shifting the perspective because the New Testament doctrine of the resurrection has some wonderful implications for our work and our toil. 1 Corinthians 15, this is the end of the passage that I preached three weeks ago on Easter Sunday. It's all about the resurrection, but I did not include the last verse. I saved it for today on accident. (laughs) Paul's conclusion to all that he has said about the resurrection. He said, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now the last verse, so what? Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not, look at Paul's choice word, in vain. In Christ, your labor is not just vanity. In Christ and only in him can your work not go up in smoke. All that we have done for him and with him in some way will be for something. It will not be in vain. Why? Because there is a resurrection where we will live and eat and breathe and work in a world no longer subject to the curse of sin. So this week you can abound in the work of the Lord, pouring yourself out for the good of others, 
and to the glory of God in your workplace, in your family, in our church, in our community, knowing that everything poured out for his sake will one day be filled and fulfilled, even if we cannot see it all until that day. Until that day, we come to this table, awaiting the day when death is swallowed up in victory and toil is swallowed up in peace. We approach this table today to receive simple gifts from God's hand. Some bread, some juice, in simple, modest fashion. And in eating this bread and drinking this cup, we recognize that we are dependent creatures, dependent on God's provision, not just for our daily bread, but for our eternal salvation. The bread and the cup we receive today are symbols, simple, modest, but profound, that point us to the greatest gift of God, his own son, crucified for our sins so that we could exchange our vanity for eternity. Because of Jesus' work on the cross, even we can be counted among those who please God. Because of his resurrection, we can know wisdom and joy and peace. This table is open today for anyone who humbly professes their need for God's forgiveness of sin in Jesus Christ and is committing to walking in fellowship with him. And if you're here today and you've not received God's gift of forgiveness and love in Jesus, we ask that you would not just take the symbols, but that we would urge that you would take the gift itself. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, broken and poured out for us and for our sin. As usual, if you'll use the center and the wall aisles to approach the table and then these other two aisles to return to your seats. And uh, if you need help approaching the table, if you uh, have trouble getting up here and would like someone to bring the elements to you, raise up your bulletin or worship guide and somebody in the back will be looking for you so we can bring those to you. Uh, let's pray and after we do, the table is, is open. So Lord, we give you thanks for your word. It's a simple gift to us today. Help us to receive it with faith. We thank you for this bread and for this cup. Pointing to the body of your son and his blood, broken and poured out. These are gifts for us today. To be received with open hands, thankfulness, and faith. And so we come to meet you at this simple table today, Lord. And receive these gifts from your hand, we pray. Amen.